Well, let's take our Bibles and let's open them to Ephesians chapter 4. This is our ninth or tenth week in this chapter. We're gradually hiking through it. And as you're turning there, I do want to let you know there is something I know about each of you today. That is that you got dressed. Not hard to figure out. Uh, you didn't just get dressed in anything either. You dressed in attire appropriate for the season, perhaps for this occasion, maybe for something that you're doing later. I mean, no one's here in a swimsuit. No one's here in rock climbing gear. And no one's here in the things they wore to bed last night. You actually put something off specifically, and you put something on specifically. That is essentially what Paul does from a spiritual perspective in verses 25 to 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. You're there, aren't you? Well, put your eyes and a finger on verse 25, and notice that here are some specific actions. We may call them particular clothes. Uh, we'll call it particular conduct. Remember last week we looked at the general call to holiness? Well, this week we're going to see the particular conduct of holiness. Things were to put off, things were to put on. You may see these as concrete traits or habits that characterize those who walk with Christ in holiness. And in this section, he will get pointedly practical. And he'll provide for us particular conduct as members of God's family. So will you follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, where Paul discusses the particular conduct of walking with Christ in holiness. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What a splendid section of scripture, right church? And before we dive into the specifics of this section, I would like to answer a question that I've been wondering most of the week, and perhaps you're wondering even now as we've read this portion, like, like why does Paul only give five items of spiritual clothes to wear? I believe there are five listed here. I'll show you those in a minute. I could grammatically, I think textually kind of prove that case but all week I've been wondering, like, five? Like, wouldn't you agree with me that there's a lot more we shouldn't do and there's a lot more we should do, right? So, so why just five? It's kind of been nagging me all week. Here's what I think is going on in light of the context. What I think is happening is this. Paul is listing these because these are, at a minimum, the actions that 
aim us towards corporate spiritual maturity and unity. I mean, these are relational items that we're putting off and relational items we're putting on. They help promote growth within the body of Christ at large. I bring your attention to verse 13 and 15 of the same chapter where it says, look with me, would you? That, that God is growing us to attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So one of the aims is church unity, church maturity. I just remind you of verse 15 where he says that we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So one of Paul's aims in this chapter, not only through spiritual gifts, but now through this a different type of conduct and lifestyle, is that the church grow in maturity and unity and holiness. So I would submit to you, these are at a minimum, perhaps are a sampling of five actions that point us, that change our trajectory as a church to that end. One author said this about this list of five. He said, the vices mentioned are those which disrupt the unity of God's people, while the virtues enhance the life of the community. So you have vices and virtues. All of them are relational, and they're aiming us towards unity and maturity as we put certain ones off and put certain ones on. So with that in mind, let's dive into these five things You'll notice that Paul does this. Uh, he puts he has five things that he says to put off, five things that he says to put on, and then he also tells us why we're to do it, which I think is very intriguing, and I think you'll find it quite uh, motivating as well. And so I've taken these verses and I've charted them in that way. I kind of listed three columns: the what we're to put off, the what we're to put on, and then of course why. So I'd encourage you to make sure you draw this chart in your journals. Maybe snap a picture of it. A log this into your memory. This would be a good way to kind of keep the text as a whole in mind. So let's walk through this chart, can we? These verses together. He says, first of all, to put off lying and to put on truth-telling. And here's why. Because we're in the same spiritual family. So that's the first thing he says to do. And I think there's a reason it's first. It's because Paul has had in his mind the idea of truth. In fact, look at the verse uh, in 24. Look at the phrase that says that this new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Not a false type, but a true one. He just finished in verse 15 saying to speak the truth in love. And so I think Paul's mind is thinking truth. And so as he brings forth the idea of putting on new clothes, I think he's saying that this, this new wardrobe is rooted in truth. After all, it's the new self brought to us by Christ. And Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. So everything about the new self, everything about this wardrobe that we're putting on is truthful. And so in our interactions with each other, we should speak truthfully, not falsely. But in all reality, we are often tempted to lie. We're often tempted to not speak the truth. And I asked myself this week, why is it that we sometimes lie, we give into that temptation, and we really don't tell the truth? I think it comes into two reasons. We either want to get our way, or we want to look a certain way. And if we feel like that's at risk, then we will adjust our words, we'll change our language, we will manipulate the truth. And we'll speak falsely at some level in order to either get our way or to look a certain way. 
And I've been tempted with this. In fact, I've given into this at times. I've lied. I've said words that were false in order to get my way or to look a certain way. When your image, your reputation may be at stake, you're afraid it's going to be tarnished, you may be embarrassed. And so you just adjust the things you say a little or a lot. That's speaking falsely. And here the word says that is not to be known among the family of God. We should instead speak truthfully to one another. Here's why. Because we are members of each other. And this is good. That, that there's an expectation that among the body we're speaking truthfully. I mean, think about it. I heard one author say this about this verse. He said, aren't you glad that your eye doesn't lie to your foot? Now, it takes a minute to process that, but in the body of Christ as various members, aren't you glad that people are telling each other the truth? So you can have right information, correct processing and, 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 and assessment of things. We need to speak truthfully with one another. Now, I don't think this means that we find a platform and we mount it and we share, we share, here's what I think about 45 topics. Here's the truth, like it or not. I don't think that's the gist of this text, okay? The tone of this text, the ambiance here behind Paul's words are that in relation with each other, kind of in response to one another, as we're interacting, we're just being truthful. We're not going to be false. We're not going to manipulate and leverage words to get our way or look a certain way. Instead, we're just going to be truthful. After all, that's the, the root of the new clothes we're wearing. There is one other intriguing aspect about this verse that I want to put in your lap. Maybe you'll talk about it at lunch, maybe in your small group. I think it's... Uh, I don't know if it's really Paul's intention. It may be. I've been wrestling this out of my mind. Is it more that Paul is, is just giving us like guidelines for personal interaction as we wear the new self, that we are to be truthful? It could be. I think, that, I think that's probably where I land, to be frank with you, because of the phrase members one of another. Paul's saying we are to interact truthfully, not falsely. But there is maybe another option that I think is very intriguing. And it comes from this fact that if you take the words do not, um, look at verse seven, uh, verse 25, put away falsehood. The word there is the lie. There's a definitive article in front of that. Put away the lie, and then he says to speak the truth. So both the words the lie and the truth are modified by a definite article. And could Paul have something in mind when he wrote the lie and when he wrote the truth? Was he thinking of a certain lie? And was he thinking of a certain truth? Are you tracking with me? I just wonder if that's what he's aiming at because of the construction of this sentence. Now, you may not show that in all the translations, but in, in the original language, that's most literally what it would say. Put away the lie and speak of the truth. If it is what Paul intended, and often, you know, what we ought to always aim for is what's the authorial intent of the text. That's what you're always after. If that is what Paul intended, could it be, I'm just proposing something, that the lie was the fact that you could be in God's family and still live like the old person. Remember the context? He said, hey, be done with walking like the Gentiles. Don't walk like, the, like your former manner of life. You've learned Christ. You're something new. You're different. So could the lie be that you can actually, uh, you know, you can be in God's family and still live like your old man? Like, that's a lie. That's not true. You can't be in God's family and live like the heathen. And could the truth be that when you come to Christ and you learn him, he changes you. This is why you can't live this way. Could that be what Paul is pointing at, perhaps? I don't know. I think it's very intriguing, though, 
process it, think about it, debate it, have fun with it. Regardless, there is this item of clothing we're to put off. It's lying. And there's this item of clothing to put on. It's truth-telling. And it's because we belong to each other as members in the same family. Secondly, he says to put off sinful anger and to put on righteous anger. And the reason is because sinful anger coddled gives the devil what one person called a half-open door. Now, you may find this stunning that Paul would actually encourage righteous anger. But that is what the text says to us. The text says to be angry, but not to the point of sinning. And that when you are angry, deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because that's when the devil moves in and gets a place to do his work. So I don't think Paul here is um, saying that anger in and of itself is wrong. He's saying that coddled sinful anger that we don't deal with is wrong. So there is a place for righteous anger. We can use the word indignation, the word anger, uh, and used in Psalm 4-4 here as well. It kind of has the idea of awe and trembling as well as rage, but don't hear rage like someone's out of control against others, more of an internal like uh, there's this consternation, there's this indignation. Now, to help you kind of process this thought where Paul says, be angry, but don't let it lead to sin and don't coddle it or hold on to it, I would just remind you of two things that are, that are hard to hold, but they're true. Jesus Christ, at several moments, was angry, but he never sinned. He, he, he realized his father's house was being misused, being blasphemed, and it angered him appropriately, but he didn't coddle it in a way that then led to sin. I would also remind you that in the Old Testament and New Testament, God has said several times, be angry with sin. Romans 1 says that he is currently uh, showing his wrath against sin and sinners, and that one day that will culminate in his judgment against sin and sinners, because God is angry at sin, but God never sins. So I admit to you, these are hard things to kind of hold together, but they help us understand the current text. That the real issue isn't the anger, it's what do you do with the emotional response of anger? Do you hold on to it and coddle it? Or do you deal with it quickly? One is a sinful anger, one's a righteous anger. Now, you may be wondering, well, Todd, how do I deal when I feel that rising internal indignation toward an injustice or toward a wrong and I'm angry. Well, if it's towards someone and they're within a conversation, let's say, or you know, they're within earshot, you can deal with it, I would talk to them truthfully. Just do number one. Have a truthful, honest conversation about the situation if you can and try to resolve it. Whatever you do, don't hold it in. Don't harbor it. Because what happens is anger is like a burr in the saddle. And man, it... it <laughs> And when you hold it, when you coddle it, when you give it space to kind of ferment, can we use that word? What happens is the devil takes any crack in the door. He takes every opportunity and he puts a kind of a base of operation there. And when you hold on to your anger and coddle it, try to give it some air, so to speak, and you let it sit and sour, 
you can be sure of this. You're giving the devil an opportunity to work in your life. So instead of holding and simmering with anger, deal with it quickly. The third thing is, he says here, put off stealing and to put on work. This is a very interesting one to me because it's uh, extremely practical, isn't it? And Paul here is saying to these believers, and the language of the text is quite intriguing, he says, no longer steal. So there were thieves in the Ephesian church, apparently, or thieves within the churches that read this letter. And he said, hey, guys, quit stealing, get a job and work. And I love the way he provides the why for this. He says, so that you can share with those in need. And this just makes such obvious sense because thieves don't share. Can we just admit that? They cover, they hide. I mean, how many times have you seen a thief say, hey, I see that you need something, Joe. I've got something in my garage. I'll help you, but just don't tell anybody where you got it because uh, it's not really mine. I mean, that doesn't happen. These aren't sharing their stuff, all right? They're hiding. They're in isolation. They're covering. Here Paul says, be done with thievery, pilfering, taking, and instead work, labor, so that you then can share with those in need. You see, honest hard work with your hands Earning an honest wage and then gathering resources is one of the best ways to actually have the things you need so that you can share with others. It's called hard work. So Paul here is admonishing them to put off stealing, thievery, and to put on work so that they can share. I love the end game of this. This is, in essence, Acts chapter 2, by the way. Acts chapter 2, where the first church was sharing with others who had need because they had jobs and they were working. There was in the mix of that one person who tried to steal, maybe not officially a physical piece of property, but they did try to steal credit. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw what people were, were doing and they said, we want in on that. And so they pretended to sell, uh, to, 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 they pretended to give some of the, their profits to the church when they really didn't. The Lord dealt with them publicly. So I'd just be aware. The reason that, one of the reasons we work is to provide for those who have needs. Interestingly, I think the Lord serves as a great model for this as well. You know, he's been the model for each of these so far. He's the truth. He has spoken truth. Um, he, we know that he has never been angry in a way that leads him to sin. And watch this. God in Genesis worked six days. He rested one, and then he shared all of his great work with Adam and Eve. You know, Adam and Eve did nothing to earn the garden. You realize that, right? They didn't create one single bit of it. They were just given the garden. What a beautiful picture of generosity from God who worked and then gave. And so I just want to encourage you, when we work and when we share our resources, we are acting like God. Notice what he says next. He says to put off corrupt talk, to put on edifying talk. And here, again, is why. So we can speak graciously to others in need. This is a beautiful tandem text, I call it. Notice the first one, we're to work so that we can share generously. Here, we're to use words that are healthy so that we can speak graciously to others in need. And in both cases, we're, we're kind of noticing who's in need. One's a physical situation, 
One's more of an emotional situation. But the radar of the Christian within God's community should be on and up and kind of rotating. Like we're noticing where our needs, both physical and emotional. And then because we work and we've got resources, we share. And then if they have an emotional need, we have words we can use that build them up. We don't use words that tear them down. This is the point of corrupt talk. The word corrupt means decaying or rotten. And so when we see emotional need in someone, we don't bring words to the table that belittle them. We don't bring words that cripple and cut. We bring words to the table that are healthy. In fact, let me just show you in this text that he says we're to bring good words as it fits the moment. You notice that? Words that build up. The word good there is the word for intrinsically healthy. There are two kinds of words in the Greek language for good. One is kalos. It means externally beautiful. It's good to look at. You may say good looking. Then there's agathos. It's the word for intrinsically good. It means that there is inherent value in the object or the thing. We're to speak words. The word here is agathos. We're to speak words that are intrinsically healthy, that bring life to people. That's why it's called a, a grace-giving kind of word. We're to be able to detect in the moment when these are necessary. So can I just speak here, again, pastorally plain to you and say that is your language the kind of language, is your conversation the kind of conversation that's not only truthful but helpful? Is it building up people? I would encourage you to, to pay attention to the words. Often, you know, we, we, we uh, use humor in such a way that it would actually fall in the category of being rotten and decaying type of language. Here's how I, I think you can tell the difference. When you aim your humor at someone to lower them and to raise yourself or to belittle them or to get a laugh at their expense or to make fun of them, and, and we could use the word sarcasm here, which simply means to cut the flesh. That's the literal meaning of sarcasm. When our words are used to try to maybe injure someone, even with humor, or to try to get a poke at them, to kind of slice them up a little bit. And I know that it's been said, well, sarcasm is my love language. I've heard folks say that in jest. And they probably just mean that they're good at humor and that satire is good for them. I mean, I'm good with humor. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with satire. Solomon said that humor is like medicine, right? It's good for the soul. So I'm not I got a problem with that. But I do think the church in general has overlooked the dangerous weapon of words that injure. And often we think we're being funny and we're actually being injurious. We're slicing and dicing little by little. And Paul said in Galatians that if, if we do this, we shouldn't, if we knit and pick, we should not be surprised if we are consumed of each other. So I would just have you analyze your conversation. Is it more like words that tend to belittle, sabotage, and cripple? Or are they words that actually, in the moment, build someone up? Do they construct the person's house, so to speak, or do they destruct the person's house? Now, while I'm being pastorally plain with you and walking all over your toes, <laughs> I would remind you that Paul's admission here does not leave us room for quotas. I'm very convicted by this. But Paul said, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Paul did not say, hey, you know what, Vince? You got three or four, you know, swings and misses today after that. Let's do a little better. Paul gives us a, an incredibly high threshold, doesn't he? I failed at this. I'm sure you have as well. 
But God's grace is strong, his spirit powerful. And I would suggest and exhort us not to give ourselves room for like, well, you know, you know what I meant. I'll work on it later. Can we just admit we should put off decaying, corrupt language, rotten words that only come in like a wrecking ball and destroy. And let's speak gracious words to help those in need. Amen, church. This is the call of Scripture to us. This is what Jesus does for his church. Through his word, it builds us up in our most holy faith. It provides uh, nourishment, spiritual milk, as Peter called it. And this is what the Holy Spirit uses when he convicts us of sin with the ultimate aim being that he grows us out of our sin and into Christ-likeness. So, so God is modeling this as well, using the right kind of words and word to grow us. Lastly, he says we're to put off grudges and vengeance, and we're to instead put on kindness and forgiveness. Why? Because God has forgiven us. Now, I've been pastorally plain and frank with you most of the morning as I usually am, but let's just put the cards on the table here. We could spend eight weeks on this one verse. And part of me wants to. I say, Todd, how do you arrive at that? Well, first of all, notice that this first list of sins to put off in this category, there's five of them. They begin at bitterness. They end at slander or blasphemy. There's five of them. We could spend a week on each one. And then there's three that we should put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. We could spend a week on those. So I could spend eight weeks on this verse, okay? It would probably get a little monotonous, so I'm going to just do this. I'm going to spend some of the podcast on Tuesday talking about the five sins we're to put off that are kind of compassed together. So be sure to check out the Extra Point Podcast Tuesday. Next week, I am going to spend the entire message on the issue of forgiveness, because I think it's an operative word in this text, and I think it's one of the reasons many churches aren't growing towards maturity. It's because we are harboring anger. It's because we are letting hurts sour and ferment. It's because we are refusing to forgive as God forgave us. And so we're not moving towards mature manhood. So I'll do that next week. Let me just, this week, suffice um, the need of the moment by saying this. The first list, these five sins, I see them as escalating sins. I think that's why Paul groups them together. He starts with something small, bitterness, and he ends with something large, slander, or the actual word is blasphemy. And if you'll notice, they go in a, we can use the word progression, we could use the word digression, they go downhill, okay? But what something, something small but sharp starts in here, bitterness, and when we don't deal with it, it ends as something loud and, and external and blasphemy, blasphemy, which is that you're just going to get someone back at all costs. You're going to ruin them. This is the digression of these sins that start small and large. They start internal, they end external. And if I were to chart the words for you, I do on Tuesday, but if I chart the words for you by definition and example, you'll see that they just move from, from internal to external. In fact, one of the words here is clamor. We don't use that word a lot, do we? We don't talk about clamor much at times, but the word literally means to imitate a raven, like rah, rah, 
God. I mean, can you imagine? It's, it's cantankerous. It's annoying. Like, who wants to hear that, right? But that's what happens to the person who harbors bitterness. They let it kind of sit and sour in wrath. At some point, they become a clamorous person. They're just very externally annoying and loud. That turns into blasphemy, which is they are intent on bringing harm and ruining someone. And then Paul says that these five escalating sins, we could even use the word de-escalating in one sense. They're just taking us down. But these five sins are kind of wrapped in malice. He says, put these away with all malice, which malice is the intent to harm. So it's almost like from, from start to finish, the person who's harboring these, their intent all along the way is to harm someone. So they've not dealt with their anger before the sun goes down, right? They've coddled it. And sure enough, look at the place the devil has in their life. He's leading them downhill further and further. Instead of those, Paul says to put on kindness, forgiveness, and tenderheartedness. These are what I call encompassing traits. So there's escalating sins that we should put off, but there are encompassing traits we should put on where your life is known by a tender-hearted nature, a forgiving posture, a kind demeanor. And why should this be what you're known by? One reason because it's how God has treated you. So I can't be any more forthright with you than this right here. The reason you should forgive the person that wronged you, the reason you should put away the bitterness that's in your heart, the reason you should not pursue any further action and, and trying to you know get vengeance and hold a grudge, the reason you should let go of every bit of that is because when you wronged God, and when you sinned against him, he forgave you through Christ. I have no greater reason, I have no greater logic than the character and conduct of God towards you on the cross. Is that hard? Yes. Is that difficult? Does it demand humility? For sure. But it's right. And this is why Paul here says, because God has acted this way towards you, we should put off grudges and vengeance and any kind of process or, or situation that's going to lead us into trying to harm people and get them back, make them pay. And we should instead clothe ourselves with the very kind of kindness that God showed us. Now, I hope that as you look at these five things, that you're not just noticing columns one and two. I'm not minimizing them. I'm not saying they don't matter. I'll exhort you to these actions, to put these things off and to put these things on. Amen, we should. But I think the most important column, the one that motivate us, motivates us to really tackle the first two is the third column in which we see why we're to engage in these actions. And notice this, church, that every one of these steps is rooted in the character and conduct of God, our Savior. He is truth. He knows what it's like to be angry without sinning. He spoke words that built up. He left us a word that builds us up. His Holy Spirit is in the business of speaking to us through the word to build us up. He forgave us. 
He shares his work with us. At every turn on this list, we see that the motivation for this kind of of wardrobe is in Christ. So understand something, church. God is not in heaven saying to you, do this and don't do that. Let me see how you do. He's not giving you clothes he's never seen or heard of. God actually, watch this, he designed the wardrobe and he demonstrates the wardrobe. He's asking you to wear clothes that he himself made and has worn. In fact, let me just show you how I know this. Look at verse 24. Right before he lists all these specific clothing items, look what he says. I love this phrase, verse 24, that this new self that we're to put on, it's created after the likeness of God. The wardrobe that you're to wear, specifically these five items, man, it was designed after God. It was demonstrated by God. So he's not asking you to wear something that he's not fully aware of and can't fully clothe you with. These are clothes he's made, and he'll put them on you. That's why I think our single sentence today in the first person would sound like this. God is addressing me in specific actions to grow me and our church in maturity, unity, and holiness. I think this sentence captures well the aim of the context, why these five are listed, as well as the fact that these are specific actions to grow us and to help us wear the new self that God has designed and demonstrated. So church, will you read this together with me? God is dressing me in specific actions to grow me and our church in maturity, unity, and holiness. Now, as I poured over these traits, these five traits that were to put off and put on, and as I poured over this truth that God is dressing us in specific clothes that he's designed and he's demonstrated. I, I became yet again this past week overwhelmingly grateful for God's commitment to my sanctification and the church's maturity. Let me share just a brief word of personal testimony to, with you about what God worked in my heart this week from this text. I was yet again just beautifully convicted that Christ is the source and sustainer of all the changes needed in my life. He's not handing me clothes he's never seen. He's not giving me items of clothing or wardrobe he's not designed. He's actually designed them after his own likeness. He's, giving, he's given Jesus to renew my mind. And so every bit of this wardrobe is designed and demonstrated by God and he's dressing me in them. And I just became overwhelmingly grateful that he is the one who sources and sustains all the changes needed in my life and the changes needed in the growth of our church. You see, the hard reality that I confronted again this week in reading these traits and seeing this truth was this. I'm guilty of every one of these. I've not been perfect in these pursuits. In this wardrobe change that I'm undergoing, I've not been the easiest guy to dress, I'm sure. I've sinned in my actions and my words and my responses through the years. In fact, I'll admit to this to you. 
since my conversion. I've hurt um, the different bodies of Christ I've been in. I have. I've hurt this church, previous churches, by my sin. I haven't been dressed appropriately, and it's hurt the church. It, it didn't urge them towards maturity. It just highlighted immaturity. I've wrongfully donned clothes that were part of the wardrobe of my old self. I have. And this is where I became overwhelmingly grateful because I realized in the middle of my continuing and frustrating humanness, Jesus was committed to renewing me and dressing me in his righteousness. That this wardrobe was something that I was gradually wearing. Even in times when I thought it was really slow and perhaps not very visible, my old man and the old, old clothes were sometimes like, oh, why did I put that on? As I look back this week, I realized 18 years here and multiple decades as a Christian in two or three or four churches, I'm not the guy I used to be. And it brought such joy to my heart that God is sanctifying me. The guy you're looking at today as your pastor, as one of your pastors, he's not the pastor who started this church with those six people. Oh, in some ways I am. No hair now, no hair then. You're right. There's a lot of things that are similar. But can I say to you, I'm glad to say to you, I've changed. God has changed me. Some folks say, well, the church is changing. Well, we should be glad. We should be changing and growing up into Christ. And when you change individually, when I change individually, guess what? The church changes collectively. This is what God is doing. And I pray that as God is changing me, it's the avenue by which our church grows up and matures in its walk. And you too. That as he changes each one of us individually, he is changing us collectively. Praise the Lord. He is doing that. This is a comforting truth to stand on, to rest in. Watch this, church, that God is fulfilling his promise of conforming me to the image of his son, of conforming you to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29, and also of growing the body of Christ to the full measure of his son, Ephesians 4, 13. God is doing both. He's committed holy and, and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y and holy, H-O-L-Y, to doing both of these, and he will finish them. Philippians 1, 6, that whatever he has started, he will finish. And this is why I don't want you to leave today with five more to-dos and five more to-don'ts. Because you can't muster the strength to carry that to your grave. You can't be the little red engine that says, I think I can, I think I can. You don't have the steam power. You can't manufacture the energy. You don't have it as a human being. But God does, and he can give it to you through his Holy Spirit. That's why the cross is so important. And we learn Christ, verse 20 says. And so as he renews us, then we put on, we put off. He's dressing us, and he'll keep dressing us until the day we die. And that's where we're conformed to the image of his son. I'm so glad God's keeping his word to sanctify his church and his family. So don't leave today with a chart in your pocket and more of your human man-made, uh, you know, discipline. Is there a place for that? Sure. 
but it is not the fuel for your tank like the person of Christ. He is the treasure. He's the engine. He's the one you should learn. He's the content and the course instructor. He's the new self. And this self that we wear is created after God's likeness. And God is dressing us in that. Watch this, church. Know it biblically, theologically, and practically. God is dressing every one of his kids in that regardless. It's taking longer for some of you. (laughs) But he will finish what he started. I'm so thankful that rich and ripe in this text is the centrality of Christ to the sanctification process. Aren't you? That it's not on your shoulders. God is changing you and consequently changing us to grow up into Christ. That's why I think early on in the week, as I just thought over this text and was moved by it so much in so many different ways, I began to hum this song most of the week. Julie would tell you that I'm a big hummer. Um, But I just kept humming this song that describes God's commitment to our salvation and sanctification, that he's the one who's making sure we're dressed. It says, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. I just found such joy and comfort in that. Haven't you ever sometimes thought your grip won't work? (laughs) I can't hold on another day. The old clothes, man, they look attractive or I'm donning them in this moment or I said this or I took that. Aren't you glad that the real root of both your salvation and sanctification is the grip of Christ? That first verse of this song is especially meaningful. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. I've had that fear at times, haven't you? Will I make it through this? When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. Let's admit that. You have those days, and I do too. But guess what? He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Say it, church. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful that you are the master dresser, that you designed and demonstrated the wardrobe. And so when you exhort and call and command us to put off and to put on, it is not a command from a far and distant deity. It is a close, 
and, and, and near call to a set of clothes that you designed and are dressing us in. And Lord, I confess to you that at times my own change of apparel seems incredibly slow. When I peel back the layers of my heart, I have to admit at times I seem incredibly resistant. And yet, to watch you over 20, 30, almost 40 years as a follower, to watch you change me, it makes texts like these land in my heart and bring great joy. God, I pray that among our flock today, there is great joy that you have started something in those who believe and you will finish it. So may we rest our hope and confidence and energy and activity not in our own strength, but in the promise that you gave that you will conform us to the image of your son. Oh Lord, keep addressing us individually and keep addressing us congregationally. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.